Would you pray with me? Thank you, God, so much for your word. As we encounter your word, we know that your word goes through us. And when your word goes through us, then we have the opportunity for it to do its uh, job, the promised job that it would divide our soul and our spirit and make our way straight. It would be a light to our path. And so that's what we want to do, Lord, is to encounter you and to encounter your word, uh, to let your word be the judge of us and not us be the judge of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I start, I wanted to share with you guys the numbers from uh, the Conduit Bible Studies 15 months. We've been in uh, existence for 15 months. And uh, as some of you know that are listening, um, and if you don't know, you can go to conduitmission.org and find out more about us. But what we do is not only do we encounter the scriptures and study and, and uh, find the Lord there verse by verse, chapter by chapter, but uh, we're kind of a different organization because we don't have any overhead or expenses. We're just just a bunch of normal people like you uh, encountering the Lord. And so what we decided to do is to uh, give away all the money that came in. We would take an offering kind of like a normal situation, uh, but because we don't have rent or we don't have overhead or salaries or payroll or those kinds of things, we just give all the money away. And uh, when we started, I don't know what I thought that the Lord would do. Maybe few hundred dollars. I don't know. I know this. This was definitely bef- uh, this would qualify as the above uh, all I could think or ask category. Uh, in the past 15 months, we've had a total of $68,334.60 go through the conduit. Uh, in fact, what we have in our account right now is part, we, we, we call it the 10% fund. The, the, the initial picture was we would give away 90% and keep 10% for operating expenses. Um, so far, we haven't found any operating expenses. And so because we're a conduit, not a reservoir, you know, a pipe, you put water through a pipe, a reservoir, you hold water back. And we don't believe that's what God has called us to do. So we just keep flushing it out. Um, the joke is that we're kind of God's uh, money toilet. We just flush it right into the system. Um, Apologize for the metaphor. Right now we have $171.93 in the 10% account. Um, And uh, that's because we gave the rest of it away. From last month, we have $2,293.85 that we'll be flushing out immediately to Place of Hope in Columbia, Tennessee, to Restoration Ministries uh, in Jockmill, Haiti. And uh, December was a really good month because, you know, we've been working on uh, putting a building together in uh, Haiti to, to serve the orphans that we're working with there and, and the, the single moms and, and the, the people that were feeding the poor in Haiti. And it was amazing to me because what we uh, we were hoping we could get $5,000. That was kind of our little goal because 5000 could finish the roof and, you know, get some stuff done. And um, right now we have uh, in that account... $8,946.80. So almost $9,000 uh, is in that account. Um, and we've got seven, uh, let's see, 576 in the Feed the Children Fund and Child Sponsorship Fund, $240. Uh, and then we've got $2,500 in uh, funds to send uh, missionaries to Haiti this year, too. So God has been really kind. Um, the picture of a conduit of uh, something we could send resources from a place that had plenty to a place that had not much uh, is, is happening. And um, we're excited about that and excited that God has, has blessed 
what we're doing. I heard it said once that if you're doing what God is already doing, you don't have to pray for it to be blessed because by its very virtue, it's already blessed. And, and I really feel like that's what we've experienced at Conduit is um, God's heart clearly. Over 2,000 scriptures uh, that refer to the uh, justice for the poor and for the vulnerable and for the oppressed and the marginalized and the disenfranchised. And that's something God is clearly after. And uh, it's something that God has absolutely blessed in what we're doing. So uh, it, it's interesting because it kind of brings me to a, a topic that has really been heavy on my heart uh, of the past month. Um, maybe you've watched the news. Uh, I, I think that one of the reasons that God has a, a special soft spot in his heart for the disenfranchised, for the marginalized, for the oppressed, was that his chosen people, Abraham's seed, the Israelis, uh, our Jewish brothers and sisters, uh, spent so much of their existence in that exact same category. Uh, if you think back to uh, Egypt and Exodus, what we're studying right now, it's a marginalized people. It's a, a disenfranchised and oppressed people. They were God's people. And God was clearly using those circumstances to bolster them and to uh, build them and to build their numbers and, and to build them in safety, as we've talked about. But very much that was under some uncomfortable circumstances. They were uh, considered second-class citizens. They were beaten and, and, and oppressed and, and, and in slavery. Um, God's people, Israel, have spent so many years. And if you look throughout history... Boy, has that happened over and over and over again, whether it was the Babylonians carrying them to exile or Rome burning down their city or even into our modern times with Hitler uh, exterminating six million people. I mean, it's a staggering number. And, and, and then into today's world, what we've seen unfolding in our society is God's people, the, the Jewish nation, uh, the, the nation of Israel, Surrounded on all sides by enemies um, that have clearly stated what they want is their extermination, their death. They don't want them uh, to move their land. They don't want them to give them a little bit more land. What they want is to exterminate them. So when we think of, of um, we think of the image of, of an oppressed people, of a marginalized people, of a disenfranchised people. I know oftentimes you don't think of Israel because, you know, quite frankly, now they're sort of militarily very powerful people. But make no mistake about it that anti-Semitism is, is on, uh, on the prowl. Even in our own nation, uh, our support of, of Israel is, is waning and it's taking on the form. And it's kind of why I wanted to talk about it. I, I wrote about it. And if you get a chance, maybe go to the blog at darrentyler.com, D-A-R-R-E-N-T-Y-L-E-R, darrentyler.com. I, I blogged about it there, but I got a lot of feedback that was, um, I, I'd say alarming, uh, disconcerting. <laughs> um, I heard things like, uh, I heard, I heard names and words like genocide and terrorism and murderers. Uh, and not in reference to Israel. I mean, not in reference to uh, the Palestinians or to Syria or Iran, but in reference to Israel as being murderers. And, and I found it fascinating because Israel, for the past few years, eight years, have been on the receiving end of rockets. And these are real bomb, like people killing bombs that have been raining down on Gaza. I mean, on Israel. Gaza has been raining these things down. It, it, it'd be like me waking up every morning in Franklin and then the people down in Colombia just lobbing rockets down. I mean, they're that close to them. And 
they don't have guidance on them, so you don't know. If you're going to school, am I going to get hit here? Am I going to get hit there? Uh, the media has reported that uh, two or three people have been killed. I've heard reports from people on the ground over there that that number is, is higher, 20 to 30 people. And, and surely it would be more if they had better technology. And surely they would use that technology once they acquire it. But in the meantime, they just were lobbing rockets down on people. It was an amazing thing to think about. And what I heard from folks that from the blog was that, well, they should negotiate. They should uh, exhaust all of their negotiating. And I, and I guess I'm thinking, how many rockets is enough? How, how much negotiating do you do? At what point is it 1,000 rockets? Is it 2,000? I mean, Israel waited until 8,000 rockets had been dropped on their land. These, these, these are rockets that have a 50-yard swath of destruction, that have shrapnel in them that are absolutely killing machines. How many is enough? 8,000 rockets later, uh, all the negotiating, they, they negotiated a ceasefire. Uh, they couldn't even negotiate the ceasefire with, directly with Hamas. They had to negotiate with, uh, with, through Egypt. Um, and the ceasefire expired in December. And I, I love the word ceasefire because it didn't really mean that they stopped. It meant that they started shooting less rockets. But then in December, when it expired, they just went crazy and started lobbing more of them. And Israel just said, you know what, enough. Um, and I think it's important to clarify something here. And, and I hope you don't mind a little bit of a geopolitical lesson here. But when I say the word Hamas, I, I want you to know that I differentiate the Palestinian people from Hamas. Okay. Now, in fairness, the Palestinian people were given elections. And when they chose and elected, they elected Hamas. And so some way the Palestinian people had chosen this government. This is a democratically elected government. And you know what? If, if you hear anything I say, uh, this is why God called us to spread the gospel and not to spread de democracy. Because what happens in a situation like this was we we uh, set up a democratic election. And what do they get? You know, we got you know Hamas as the government. Um, Hamas is a separate organization from Fatah. They were two rival uh, political parties in the Palestinian uh, in the Palestinian areas. Now, what's happened recently is. Uh, three years ago was that the uh, Hamas folks uh, with a military coup took over their area in the Gaza Strip and basically have recognized that uh, Mahmoud Abbas is their president. Um, his term is up January 9th, which is uh, next week. They've are actually in three days now. And they've said this. They've said that if uh, once that time expires, they don't recognize him anymore, even though the Fatah party has thought that they could uh, keep him in, part, in power a little bit longer. Uh, Hamas has said, we reject that summarily. He is not our leader. Uh, and, and it's a shame because Abbas has been somebody that has been recognized by Israel as a possibility, even though it's a long shot for peace. He's, over, he's been in our country um, as somebody that is being uh, courted for the peace process, but he has no power. Hamas has absolutely rejected the Fatah uh, party. And and ultimately, it, it's anybody's guess anyway. He, you know, <laughs> Abbas is part of the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, founded by Yasser Arafat, who, uh, whatever you want to call him, was a cold-blooded murderer. Uh, so who knows what that would look like. But what we see right now is that this idea of who we can negotiate with is we can't negotiate with the president of Palestine because he's not recognized as a president. He's not uh, respected as a president. And so what Israel has done is instead of uh, continuing negotiating and letting another rocket fall, single rocket, instead of letting another thousand rockets fall, they've gone in to uh, remove Hamas from power. Uh, it's 
it's it's a, a military feat that is absolutely crushing to Hamas. And again, we pray for the Palestinian people because, man, it's a bummer. And, and, and there are Christians inside of Palestine, Christians who, by the way, are also persecuted by the Hamas party. Be praying for our Palestinian brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, there's word that the Gaza church was was hit by one of the Israeli airstrikes because it was uh, is where the Hamas were storing their uh, their missiles and their uh, weaponry and were hiding in there too. Um, they're very well known for hiding amongst civilians, hiding in hospitals and hiding in schools, putting their weapons there. And then, of course, when Israel strikes them and uh, and civilians are hurt, what do they put on the news? They put the children on the news. And, and it's heartbreaking and it's wrenching and it's something that honestly is uh, that I struggle with. But I know this, that war, when Jesus returns, will be no more. Because he's going to, all of our weapons will be beat into plowshares. And so that day is coming. Uh, But in the meantime, we live in this imperfect world. We live in this fallen world. And uh, and I want to talk just for a little bit about, I guess, our biblical response to this tonight. Um, I think it's absolute lunacy, this idea that we could negotiate with uh, with terrorists, where, where I'm from, <laughs> there comes a point in a negotiation that's called an impasse, or maybe you call it a deal breaker. But the negotiations right now, Israel's stated claim, for anybody who wants to call them a terrorist, their stated claim has been that we just want the missiles to stop. We want them to stop firing rockets on us. We want the suicide bombings to start. We want peace. I've heard claims of genocide from Israel. That's It's absolute nonsense. There's no fact in that whatsoever. When you look at the news organizations, when you look at even liberal-leaning CNN-type organizations, Israel has never stated that that is their objective or their goal is to wipe out the Palestinians or the Arabs or any of that. On the other hand, Hamas, uh, the PLO, Iran, Their stated goal is to wipe out the nation of Israel, to wipe them off the map, to kill them, genocide. Where I'm from, if I come to you and say, hey, let's have peace, and you say, I want you dead, that's your your deal breaker is you got to be dead. My deal breaker is we need peace. Well, we have what we call an impasse, and at some point, then governments move in, and this is what governments do, and I... uh, I'm bummed, and my heart breaks for the people that are living in the middle of it, Um, but they're victims of Hamas, and they're uh, victims of Islamic extremists, and not of Israel defending herself. Uh, Genesis chapter 12 is at the beginning of the Bible. It's a real easy book to find. You love those books, right? Genesis chapter 12, God said to Abraham this, that I will make you, verse 2, into a great nation, and I will bless you I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse whoever curses you. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. It says that he traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree at Moreh and Shechem, which is in the West Bank, by the way. When we talk about West Bank now, that's where that is. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land and the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give you this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he went on to east of Bethel and pitched his tent Bethel, uh, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord, called upon the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. God's promise to our brothers, sisters in Israel, is this. He says that, I'm gonna, I gave you this land, Abraham give you all the way to Shechem. He, he basically, when you look at the map, it, it's it's way beyond the borders actually where it is right now. This land was given as a promise to Abraham. 
I want you to know, and if you do, if you, while I'm about to read this, go to Romans with me too, because I want to read something else to you. But God said something at this moment. He said to Abram, that I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. All the nations of the world will be blessed through you. This is a promise that was made, and I don't know if you've noticed, but there was no if in there. Abraham, if you do this, I will do this. This was one of those promises from the Lord that was in Abram, because of my sovereignty, because of my grace, because of my mercy, because of my kindness, I'm choosing you, I'm giving you this land. This land that, by the way, is one-tenth of one percent of the entire Arab lands. Literally, understand one-tenth of one percent. It's the only land in the entire area that has no oil under it. I heard it said that there was a joke that Abram spent, or Moses spent 40 years wandering through the desert to be able to find the only land in the Middle East that doesn't have any oil. Uh, there's no natural resources there. God has blessed them. They're one of the, what, the fourth largest exporter of fruit in the world. They're a very prosperous nation, but not because of the land that it's on. So one-tenth of one percent of the land that God, that they're on right now, that, they, that they're, they're occupying right now, that, that is their land that God has given to them. That land was a promise from God. And, and the question, I guess, maybe you might be asking is, what does it matter, Darren? What does it matter? And I would say, first of all, because God did say specifically, I'll bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who curse you. I've heard it say, well, I can't base my life on some prophecy, this... But this is God's word. And when you encounter God's word, this is why I love what we do going through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. You encounter the Lord there and you're forced to make some decisions. You're like, okay, God said this. So what is my response to this? And God said to Abram, I will bless those who bless you. And I'm not suggesting that Israel has never made any mistakes. I'm not suggesting that I agree or you should agree with everything that their government does. Um, that's nonsense. It's crazy. I, I live in America. I don't know if you're aware of this, but you know, I don't agree with everything our government has done. But I still support them and I still pray for them. I still pray that uh, that our nation is blessed as well. And we're blessed, I believe, because of we're one of the only nations that has shown unwavering support of Israel. But why does it matter on a spiritual level? And, and here is why, it, if it doesn't matter, here's one thought of why it could or why it should. If you go to the book of Romans, you realize something. Paul spends the first eight chapters talking about salvation, grace. It's where we get the passage of why do I do the things I don't want to do, the passage of there's therefore now no condemnation, because what he's doing is building is God has given us this great salvation, this great mercy and grace, this gift of grace to us, this promise of unmerited favor, which is an unearned gift. And it matters because what Paul then goes on to say, he goes on to Say, because if you're saying, man, I've blown it, I've screwed it up, how can God possibly, I've fallen this far. He goes on to use Israel as an example, a literal example of how we know that our grace and our position with him is secure. He talks about the election of them and God choosing them. And in chapter uh, 11, he goes on to talk about this is after they've fallen away. They've really blown it. They've been carried off into captivity. And he, he goes into chapter 11, he says in verse one, but did God reject his people? You know, this, and this is us again, your promise of salvation. How do I know that God, when I step before his throne, that God's going to keep his promise to me, that the teachings of Jesus are valid and that he's, he's trustworthy. And Paul says, the reason I can know that is, did God reject his people, Israel? No means. Says I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know that the, what the scripture says in the passage 
about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? He says, that I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not. So he begins to use this passage teaching about uh, Elijah, how God said, I'd reserved them. And he says uh, this in verse 7, what then was what Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened, as it is written, listen to this, that God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they could not see and ears that they could not hear to this very day. A spirit of stupor. When you wonder, man, the Pharisees, they should have known and they didn't. How is it possible that they didn't know? And Paul explains it. He says that God hardened their hearts. And he goes on to say that it's like Pharaoh. When God hardened his heart, it says that God God hardens whom he hardens and softens whom he softens. And what he's saying is this, that when they were hardened, it was for our gift. It says, uh, verse 11, did they stumble so to fall uh, beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, listen to this, because of their transgression, listen to this, uh, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater Riches will their fullness bring. Uh, in verse 15, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And it talks about uh, grafting branches into the vine. And it talks about then, um, and go down with me to verse 28. No, you don't go to, go to here. Go to verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant. By the way, if you're looking for a good Bible study, Go for the, I do not want to be ignorant. It's five different times Paul says, I do not want to be ignorant. He says, I don't want to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. We won't go into that, but find the, I do not want to be ignorant. You don't want you to be ignorant about these things. So this is something he says, I don't want you to be ignorant about. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. In verse 28, as far as the gospel is concerned, they're enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's, listen to this, his gifts and his call are irrevocable. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this fact. Israel has experienced a hardening for now. That's how they can miss Messiah. That's why it's so hard when you're talking with a Jew about Christ. They can say, no, no, we're still looking for Messiah. I've heard it explained that they were looking for a military leader. And, and, and yes, absolutely, maybe so. Those are maybe the meth- methods by which God used in, in hardening their hearts. But for now, they don't get it. They're blinded and they're hardened. Uh, in, in Exodus, it's interesting because uh, it says that God hardened Pharaoh, that Pharaoh hardened his heart 14 times. It was 14 times that his heart was hardened. Seven times it was God that hardened it, it says. And seven times it says Pharaoh hardened it. It's God basically saying to them, this is you know hardening and putting on you fulfilling your, your own choices. I mean, whatever your theology is there, but he's done it with Israel because they don't understand right now. And in Paul, it says there that they're enemies on your account. And for Paul in his day, absolutely. The Jewish people were hardcore against the Christians and what were going on and the King and the Messiah. They considered them looney tunes. And God says through Paul that they're enemies on your account, but they're loved on account of the patriarchs. And I love it because of that, on account uh, account of the patriarchs, because again, he made a promise to Abraham that I'm going to give you this land, that you are my people, I'm going to bless this nation. And what Paul is saying this, is that when God makes a promise, he says this, that his gifts and his calls are irrevocable. 
Now, I've heard it used before, that passage, when it talks about a calling on somebody's life or somebody's backslidden, and it says that, yeah, God's calling is irrevocable. And, and you know what? I believe that that's probably true, and it could be applied that way. But that's not what it's talking about here. The gift and the call that it's talking about is of salvation, is of a promise that he made to a guy named Abraham, a promise that exists to this day, and a promise, and I've heard it said by another pastor, and it sounds so corny, but it stuck with me, that if it's true for the Jew, that it's true for you. <laughs> you see, God's promise to the Jew is true. He's kept his word. He will keep his word. In 1948, a nation was born called Israel. Never before in the history of the world has a nation been wiped off the face of the earth and, okay, there's been nations wiped off the face of the earth, but there's never been a time when a nation was wiped off the face of the earth and they came back into existence. And that is what happened in 1948. It was after 1917 and World War I when the, uh, uh, the British had won and uh, uh, General Lord Allenby had set up shop in Jerusalem there. And there was a guy named Heim Weissman that had uh, developed a, a new kind of explosive, a, a Jewish man that had turned the tide in World War I and uh, allowed the, the British to win. And so what happened was in 1917 was a little thing called the Balfour Declaration, which was Heim was asked, what is it that you would like uh, as a reward or whatever for what you've done? And he said, all I want is to be able to have a my people to go home to their place, to Jerusalem. And so Lord Allenby gave them, and at that time gave them the land east and west of the Jordan. So right now it's all, we hear of the West Bank. They're all on the other side of the Jordan, on the west side of the Jordan. But at, the, at that time, it was all the way into what's now modern-day Jordan. And in 1917, the Balfour Declaration, that's what was given unto Israel. And people started to come back. Uh, the prophecy of let them uh, come from the north and the south, let the nations give up them and come back. And here's this nation coming back in. And uh, parenthetically, in 1922, uh, I can't remember which the prime minister, but Britain at that time, said, eh, we've, we've given you too much land because of course the Arabs were, you know, were, were upset and were freaking out. We've given them to, you know, this and that. So they give King Abdullah now, so of the original land, 100% of the land they gave them, they gave, listen to this, 77% of that they gave to King Abdullah, which is now modern day Jordan. Then it was called Transjordan. So 70%, 77% of the land that was given to Israel at that time was given back to Transjordan, to Jordan. And now Israel only has 22% of that land. And of course, as time went on, they gave up other pieces of land and pieces of property because every time it comes around, Israel, if you'll just give us land, will give you peace. And that's what's been happening over and over again, whether it was Egypt, whether it was Hezbollah in Lebanon, or whether it was you know, Hamas or the PLO. And every time Israel gives up a little more land, they get no peace. And you can look at it, mark my words, whether it was the Oslo Peace Accord, if you remember that awkward handshake between Yasser Arafat, uh, and it was, it was amazing. They're standing there, they're shaking hands. It's going to be peace. That was 1993. President Clinton there, very excited. And, and you know what? Kudos to him for attempting to, to work out some sort of a solution. Uh, but now, 15 years later, there hasn't been any peace from it. And it, the problem is this. It is not that they're looking for when I say they, meaning Hamas or meaning Hezbollah, the Islamic extremists. And I've heard it said once that, yeah, you know, there's only 10% of them that are Islamic extremists. But let me tell you what, if there's a hundred uh, or a billion Muslims in the world, that's a hundred million that are Islamic extremists. And that's quite a few. But we've got guys over there that they don't want peace. They want them dead. Uh, Yasser Arafat, not long after that, was caught on tape in South Africa asking about uh, that treaty that he had made. And he said, yeah, well, well, you know, and this I'm kind of butchering the quote, but his, his, his recording said that I, I will, uh, I'll treat that, um, I'll, I'll treat that peace treaty 
like our prophet Muhammad did in Medina. And what he was talking about was Quraysh. And he used the word Quraysh, which was in the Quran, this idea that when Muhammad went to Medina, didn't necessarily have the power. He created a peace treaty with Medina. And uh, that peace treaty was two years later <laughs> was settled with him slaughtering every fighting age male in the town of Medina. Uh, and the idea of Quraysh is that I can make a treaty as long as it allows me then to defeat my enemies later, uh, if it allows me to conquer the land and to, to reclaim the land. And so that's what Yasser Arafat said. Hey, that's how he was going to treat that treaty with Israel. Uh, what are we to do? You know, our nation has been involved in um, negotiations. We've had Condi over there uh, in her hoochie boots with the roadmap to peace, which uh, talks about dividing the city. I don't think that's it. I think we give them more land and that's not it. Uh, I, I think that our nation has blessed Israel, but when we have done these little stunts where we talk about dividing the land again, dividing the city, uh, and I've heard it said that the piece of land that they're talking about in Jerusalem is, uh, is not that great or whatever, but the fact of the matter is, is every time, every time without fail that we've given them more land, what we've done is given them a closer shot at Israel. When we gave the Gaza Strip up and, and let them have uh, their own government there, what we've done is give them another launching site for rockets into Israel. 8,000 rockets have fallen. Uh, it's a group of people, not the Palestinian people alone, not the Christians or even some of the Muslims that are not extremists or the secular Muslims over there, but the, the, the Islamist extremists. They are the ones, if you're looking for a place to be angry and to be frustrated and to pray about, is that the justice would be done for those people because the people in the Palestinian territory are just as much victims as are the people in Israel. And, and it's, I've heard it said that it's their fault because they elected them. But you know what? They were deceived and they've been deceived because it's Hamas that knows how to win a political war with them and they're providing them with water and electricity and food and all those things. And so they look at them as this great savior and all they know of Israel is the ones dropping bombs on them. They don't know that Israel doesn't want to kill them all. So we pray for them that their eyes would be open. We pray for, Psalm 122 says, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Uh, it says that those who love you will be blessed. I want to pray for them. I want to be what God is for. So we pray for them. We pray for our Palestinian brothers and sisters, the Christians that are in the middle of this war-torn area. We pray for that their eyes would be open and that their lives would be secure. Uh, we pray for uh, the people that are making decisions in our own government. Peter talks about that in his epistle, that we should pray for those in authority over us. We have a president that's coming in named Obama. Obama, who is our president, uh, has done something real interesting lately. He has decided that uh, on most issues, he, he says this, I want to be, there's only one president, only one commander-in-chief at a time, so he's remained perfectly silent on this situation going on in Israel. I find it fascinating because he's he's very verbal on a lot of things, so he's kind of picking and choosing where there's one commander-in-chief. But the things that have been very controversial and very tricky, he's kind of been quiet on. And so there's a little bit of a wonderment going on. Is What's Obama going to do? Let's pray for him. Pray that he'll be led. And, and you know what? I, I, I was talking to uh, a friend of our ministry named Jay Seculo, and he said this to me. He said that when you guys email your congressman, he goes, listen to this. He said they count everyone. And you go to their office, and they've got stacks of them. So you know what? Lobby your congressman. Email them. Say, look, we want you to support Israel. And this is important because let me tell you we're kind of alone right now. The UN, I mean, there's a lot of kind of friends of Israel out there because they kind of fighting it as a proxy war or whatever. But I'll tell you what, if Iran decides to shut off oil to supporters of Israel, don't think that'll happen in the near future. But if it ever does, 
you know what, give me a bike. I'll ride it. But I'd say that we need to know, our government officials need to know that it's important. We don't want to get to that state, to that place, because we want to know that we're friends of them. We need them. They need us. Whether you're religiously involved or believe what I talk about from Genesis or not, we need an ally in the Middle East as a, as a government. Um, so pray for our, our leaders to make good decisions and to make wise decisions and to pray for our friends and our brothers and sisters here in America whose eyes are blinded. Uh, when I hear words like terrorist and genocidal maniacs lobbed at Israel, it really breaks my heart because what they're doing is people that God says I love, they're loved on account of the patriarchs for God's gifts and his calls are irrevocable. Those are God's people that he's chosen and they're blinded and they don't understand about the gospel but man, pray for our brothers and sisters here that their eyes would be open. And know this, lastly, we don't have to be afraid. We just don't. When you look at the pig picture, this is God's will being done. When you look in the prophecies of Ezekiel, it says, I'm going to put a hook in Magog's jaw and draw her in. I mean, this is exactly as God said it would be. We don't have to be scared. We can be excited. The Bible says when we talk about what's happening with the way our world is right now, when you look at Matthew 24 and 25, uh, the signs of the end, it says in Thessalonians that we should comfort each other with these words. I heard somebody say or read what somebody wrote on one of my blog posts that I don't have any time for eschatology or talks about that. And, and I found that kind of sad because almost every epistle ends with talking about the signs of his coming. Be prepared about his coming with his return, you know, and it talks about how we would live. We would live differently because we know he's coming. And, and, and this is lastly, because this is where conduit comes into the whole thing. When you look at Matthew 25, which is the signs of the end, Matthew 24, Jesus says, I'm going to come and here are the signs. He says, you're not going to know the day or the hour, true, but you're going to know the seasons. When it gets to be autumn, it's cool and it's crisp outside and you kind of know that it's getting different out there. And so you're going to know. We can look at Matthew 24 and say, you know what? The seasons are changing. It looks different than it did. Uh, the concentric circles are tightening in closer and closer to exactly where God said it would be, which is in Jerusalem and Zechariah, that she would become a cup of trembling to all nations that would try to move her. I mean, it's Zechariah 12, if you haven't read it, Ezekiel 35, Daniel 8 and 9. The, the, the prophecies are amazing. Maybe it's not uh, of good use of time to try to pretend we know who's going to be the Antichrist and all those things, and I agree it's not, but it is a great use of time to believe and to know that God is coming, that Jesus is returning. And he ends Matthew 25 with this. He says that when I return, to say to the sheep to get to the side and the goats to that. But here's the thing, and this is it. I'm landing it on this one. He says this, that it, because I'm going to say to you that you who, uh, who gave me clothes to eat, water to drink, food to eat, you visited me in prison. And, and it says to the, the goats are going to say, well, we, you know, you didn't do that. The goats, we didn't know. How do we, you know, when did we not do that? And he said, when you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it unto me. And then he says to the sheep that when you've done it unto the least of these, that you've done it unto me. And he talks about feeding and clothing and loving on the least of these. And interesting enough, he says this, the least of these brethren of mine. And someone pointed out to me last night, <coughs> excuse me, that Jesus said, who are my brothers? You are my brothers and you are my sisters. Those are my disciples, my brothers and sisters. You are my brothers and you are my sisters. When you've done it unto the least of these brothers of mine, then you've done it unto me. Jesus isn't hungry. He's not thirsty. He doesn't have any needs. How do you serve a God that doesn't have any needs? You and I have a need inside of us, a desire inside of us that's wired, hardwired in us to give and to serve and to, to bring. And if you've never experienced it, when you feed a child that's hungry, when you hug a, an elderly person who's alone, man, it doesn't only bring them joy, it brings you joy. You hear it every time when you see somebody who's come back from a, an experience overseas. They talk about, man, I thought I was going to minister to them, and boy, I was way ministered to more than they were.
it's what we're wired to do. And Jesus says, I don't need that from you because I'm, I'm God, I'm perfect, I'm whole, I'm complete. But when you do it unto the least of these brethren of mine, then you've done it unto me. And so Jesus says that in, in what context? In the context of Matthew 25, which is the context of I'm coming back. And I want to find you work. And he's not going to say to the sheep and the goats, well, you went to church every Sunday, you raised your hands when you sang, and you praised real loud, and all those things that we kind of give as our litmus test. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Those are parts of our lives and parts of our walk with the Lord. But he gives us the proof of salvation, the, the proof that is your, your heart, the work of salvation done in your heart, the proof of that is your ability to love on the least of these brothers of mine. It's what John said in First John when he says, how can you who say you have the love of God in your heart look at someone at you, a brother of yours in need and not help him? Uh, it's the love of God in you that compels you to do those things. In Second Corinthians 8 and 9, when Paul is talking about an offering for the poor, what he's saying is that he doesn't show pictures of the, of the little kids with the fat bellies and, and the, the suffering. What he does is he says he compels them with the love of God. He says, if you love the Lord, let this be a test of your love for the Lord, this gift that you're giving for the saints. And I would ask you to pray, whether you agree with me or not on my stance on Israel, to know that Jesus is returning. Whether you believe he's returning in our lifetime or not, to know that he could, he might. And I suggest that it'd be great if we were found working. When it talks about those parables, the parable of the master coming back with a servant and the talents in that same chapter of chapter 25. It talks about the, the, uh, the, uh, the parable of the virgins and the oil and the lamps. All in that chapter about Jesus, this master that is returning. But he ends it and he caps it with, here's the work that we should be doing, that we should be using our talents for, is serving the least of these brothers of mine, Jesus called them. That's what Conduit has done. Conduitmission.org is that. If you give money to our organization, you can donate online at conduitmission.org. You can mail us a check at 256 Seaboard Lane. That's 256 S-E-A-B-O-A-R-D Lane. Building C, uh, so just put uh, building C, so put C-103, so 256 Seaboard Lane, C-103, Franklin, Tennessee, 37067, 37067. We'll give all your money away. We can feed a child in Haiti for a month for 15 bucks. The ministry that we're doing with Place of Hope in Columbia has got 20 inpatients right now, folks that are brothers and sisters in Christ whose bodies and minds were racked with addiction to drugs and alcohol and they're being restored unto their families and unto the Lord, uh, a ministry to the homeless there in Columbia that have taken people off the streets, out of prison, people out of prison. There's a halfway house that we're funding through Place of Hope that prisoners getting out that don't have a family or a job and they, they give them a place to stay and teach them the principles of the Lord and, and get them jobs. That's happening right here in America. Uh, what we've done in Haiti is remarkable. $15 feed a kid for a month. We're building a house over there. 85 to 100 kids a month are eating and going to school because of what we're doing through just our little Bible study at conduitmission.org. It's amazing what God has done. And you know, if maybe God doesn't lead you to do it to our ministry, no pressure. If you feel pressure, Paul said in Second Corinthians that you don't have to give. It's, it's, it's a, your business to give someplace else. All he says is that you don't do it out of pressure, but you do it out of a, a number one, a cheerful heart, and I think for so many years, people haven't given to the church because we haven't given them anything to be cheerful about. We're, we're given something to be cheerful about here. So give out of a cheerful heart, but give out of a strategy and a purpose and a plan that's a part of your lifestyle of giving, of your resources, and of your time and of your love to the neighbors and the people right around you. Uh, thanks so much for your time today. Uh, I know it was a little different coming straight from my computer, and it's not as much <laughs> fun for me when I don't have folks with me that can give me feedback, but... Uh, 
I hope it blessed you. I hope that you'll continue to pray for our brothers and sisters in Israel and in Palestine and for our government, uh, that you'll write your congressman, that you will write your elected officials, and that you will ultimately pray for uh, pray for the, the, the peace of Jerusalem. Psalm 122, the peace of Jerusalem, all that love him, all that love you will be secure. Pray for that and know that he is coming. Uh, he's coming soon. Whether it looks like what happened in the Left Behind movies, whether Kirk Cameron gets left behind, I don't know. I do know this, that he's coming. Uh, he didn't give us anything other than to say we could look for the signs and boy, they're everywhere right now. And uh, we can be excited about that. We can get uh, fired up and know that this is the time that the disciples all longed for. And here we are living right in the middle of it. Uh, pray for you to have blessings and we'll see you next week. We meet every week, uh, 730 at Journey Ecclesia in Franklin, Tennessee.